This study recording is of our regular Sunday service, March 31st, 2019 at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Today's reading is from Ecclesiastes 2, verses 12 through 26. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man who comes after the king? Only what has already, come, what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And in my, in my heart, that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. So I turned about and I gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of the heart with which he toils beneath the sun, for all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering God. and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after wind. This is the word of God. Speak to us through what seems like kind of a dark passage. Thank you. But that's Ecclesiastes. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your goodness. We praise you for your grace. We praise you for your generosity and your goodness. Lord, you are the great shepherd, the faithful shepherd, the loving shepherd, the perfect shepherd. But like lost sheep, Lord, we wander often. Our hearts are prone to wander away from you into dangerous places that do not satisfy and that often kill. We often reject, Lord, your green pastures for what amount to barren deserts. We reject your still waters for raging rivers that we can't possibly cross or drink from. And the further we walk away from your presence, Lord, it seems the harder it gets, but it doesn't often stop us. Pray you will lead us, Lord. 
captivate us with Your promises again. Let the valleys of death and difficulty that we find ourselves in force us to look up and see where our help comes from. May the darkness that these valleys cause, Lord, make Your light shine that much brighter. Quell our fears as a shepherd. Let Your rod of discipline lovingly guard us from danger and let Your staff comfort us and remind us of Your love and Your presence. For Jesus, You are our shepherd, our Lord, our Savior, our King, and we recognize that You are richly present with us as Your flock gathers. And we gather to remember what You have done Despite what we have done, despite what we have not done, Lord, we are here to celebrate what You have done for us, having defeated sin, having promised to cleanse us from shame and forgive us of guilt. But in this life, Lord, as the storm rages, let us not be the faithless people who cry out to You, Lord, do You even care? But give us the faith, Lord, to know that You do love us that You are in control, that You are with us in the middle of the storm. For Your glory, Lord, lead us and help us lead those in our care in the ways of Christ. For Your glory, Lord, bring us another staff pastor that can help carry the burden that is wonderful but difficult for this flock. For Your glory, Lord, empower every member's efforts against the darkness in this world. Just help us to be faithful, Lord. For Your glory, Lord, I pray You will convince those who are part of this gathering that they are essential to this body. That they are designed uniquely to be used to edify this body and to bring more glory to You in this place. For Your glory, Lord, help us to be a greater witness in this city using this building, stewarding it well, And for your glory, Lord, I pray you will continue to remind us that the church is still growing, that churches like Icon and Seattle are being planted, that more disciples are being made, that lives are being changed. And let us not get distracted by what we don't see, but Father, believe that you are working always and forever outside of this small pocket of the world. For your glory, Lord, help us to be faithful, prayerful, thankful, to not covet what we don't have, but to enjoy what we do. Holy Spirit, move me out of the way this morning. Speak the words you need to speak. Words of conviction, words of comfort. Take what is, Holy Spirit, please, somewhat of a dark passage, and let us find hope. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, in college, um, I studied to be a teacher, obviously. I studied to be an English teacher, although I didn't really like literature and still don't like that too much. But I read a lot of literature, studied a lot of literature. I liked ideas. I liked to talk about ideas. But when I was in college, I went through many, many literature classes, and there was one class that made you memorize a poem. So I searched the anthology for the shortest poem I could find, and I found it, and I memorized it. And it's a poem that you've probably never heard of. It's called Death of the Ball Turret Gunner. It's a poem by Randall Gerald, published in 1945. And it's about the death of a gunner in the Sperry Ball turret of a B-17 Flying Fortress airplane from World War II. It's a simple poem, but it has deep meaning. So it's only five lines. I'm going to read it to you. It says this, From my mother's sleep, 
I fell into the state, and I hunched in its belly till my wet fur froze. Six miles from earth, loosed from its dream of life, I woke to black flack and the nightmare fighters. And when I died, they washed me out of the turret with a hose. Pretty dark poem. Cold poem, kind of shocking poem. Basically, it says, in its own figurative way, we're born, we spend our days dreaming only to be awoken by the living nightmare that is life, full of flack, where you get shots taken at you, or shrapnel of shots taken from others. Eventually, after fighting as hard as we can, heroically at times, we die, and the memory of our presence is washed away. Now, English teachers spend days. The shortest poem I ever found was a poem called Fleas, and it was Adam Haddam. As an English teacher, I would spend an entire hour breaking down that poem. It was awesome. So this is five lines, right? Teachers can spend days studying talking about what this poem says about life and the world. But I would argue that the preacher of Ecclesiastes summarized it well in a word. Meaningless. Meaningless. Life is like this poem, and this poem is like Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes should not be considered a dark book, a depressing book, though it can be a little bit if you don't understand what is being written and why it's being written. It's perhaps better described as an honest book, what Herman Melville, American novelist, called the truest of all books. So Ecclesiastes is a book of wisdom, and it contains the reflections of Solomon, one of the most wisest men that ever lived. And like a grandfather, he's offering Words of wisdom to the next generation. It's a record of his conclusions from what can be described as his meaning of life experiment, his meaning of life search. And as we saw last week, beginning in chapter 2, Solomon pursued an inventory of very playful pleasures and very practical pleasures. And though in the eyes of the world, Solomon climbed to the top of just about every mountain that anyone could ever desire. He was at the peak of them all. In the end, they all proved to be gainless joys. His experiment was not a mindful indulgence. It wasn't just like, I'm just going to seek pleasure and not care about anything. It was very intentional. His mind was with him. He says more than once that his wisdom remained with him as he denied himself nothing. I'm going to try this and see if it satisfies. I'm going to try this and see if it resolves the emptiness. I'm going to try this and see if it gives me meaning. And yet, none of the things that he tried filled his emptiness. It was like vapor, he said, which is the word vanity. Vapor. You can see it. And yet when you try to grasp it, it disappears. There's no substance to it. Everything that he experimented proved to be chasing after the wind. His search for life was trying or like trying to catch wind. Now on the second half of this chapter, 
beginning in verse 12, he asks himself a question because he's the wisest guy that ever lived under Jesus. And he asks, look, is it, I've done all these things with wisdom. I've, I've pursued everything. I've explored everything. I've, I've gotten more indulgence and created more things than anyone can ever possibly do after me. And yet, he asks, is life any better living wisely than living foolishly? Is there anything to be gained by living with that kind of intention as opposed to living without any purpose at all, just aimlessly? And here's what he says in verse 12. He says, I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. In verse 13 he says, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly as there is more gain in light than in darkness. So what he says is that it is better to live a wise life as opposed to a foolish one. But even with a wise life, wisdom cannot resolve the big problems of life. He describes it this way, that wisdom is like a light. It lights our path in a dark place. But we're still walking through the same room full of the same problems and the same pitfalls as the fool. The difference is the wise can see the things. In many ways, the wise can, can, wisdom can help avoid some foolish mistakes. Wisdom can help you have a higher quality of life in those moments of life. But in the end, wisdom does not protect us from how it all ends. The fool and the wise end up in the same place. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 14, is where Solomon says this. He says, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So the wise can see, can miss the pitfall, he can turn left, he can duck. He goes, and yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. And then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool is going to happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. Ever had that thought? How the wise dies just like the fool. The person who's living their life seemingly with wisdom dies just like the person who said, I don't care. Death is the great leveler of life. No matter how much you know, no matter how much you achieve, no matter how much you enjoy, no matter how many healthy things you do or unhealthy things you avoid, death comes to us all. That's what Solomon says. The reality of our death has a way of shocking us all into this kind of reprioritization of our lives. If you ever have those words spoken to you about a terminal illness or someone close to you, it's in those moments which actually Solomon will later talk about the glory of a funeral how it causes people to take it to heart, their mortality. 
When that happens to you, you can't help but suddenly go, wait, let me see with new eyes. My perspective is shifted. But the truth is, unless you're faced with that particular moment, whether in your life or a life of your loved one, we rarely think about death at all. The younger you are, the probably less you think about it. You feel invincible. You feel like life's going to go on forever. And the older you get, you realize that's not true. Solomon is asking us to think about death before we're facing it. Now, reformer Martin Luther said a very similar thing. He encouraged us in this way. He said we should familiarize ourselves with death during our lifetime, inviting death into our presence when it's still at a distance and on the move. So not to be dark or morbid, Perhaps we should do as Solomon asks and go, let's think about our death, which none of us know is going to come, like when that is, but we can be certain it will come. The Bible says that mankind's not going to live any longer than about 120 years. And that fact, if you read science, is becoming more and more confirmed that no matter what we do, our bodies just wear out at about that time. Now, it's unlikely that many of us will live to be 120. I'm not sure how many of us would want to live to 120. But as life gets extended by science, you begin to see or think like, maybe it could go on forever. Maybe they could zap my mind and put it in a computer. It's just a way to try and avoid death. Wisdom will rightly argue that our quality of life during our 120 years or 70 years or 100 years or 40 years, whatever it is, that our quality of life will be affected by our decisions. Like you can eat poorly and drink poorly and do horrible things or or dangerous things that can make your quality of life worse. But even if you make all the right decisions, the best decisions, the wisest decisions, the perfect decisions... Mortality is undeniable. It's mind-blowing thought to think about this. That a hundred years from now, everyone that is now living will be dead. The entire world will have been replaced. Now, in his book about death, titled The Last Enemy, author Mike Whitmer said it this way, and again, Ecclesiastes, though dark, intends to go into the valley and then take us into the light. So we got to go into the valley or the light's not going to seem very bright or captivating. Here's what he says in his book, The Last Enemy. He says, you're going to die. Take a moment to let that sink in. You're going to die. One morning the sun will rise and you won't see it. Birds will greet the dawn and you won't hear them. Friends and family will gather to celebrate your life. And after you're buried, they'll return to the church for ham and scalloped potatoes. Soon your job and your favorite chair, your spot on the team, will be filled by someone else. The rest of the world may pause to remember. It will give you a moment of silence if you were rich or well-known, but then it will carry on as it did before you arrived. Ooh. right? How often do we think about that? So much truth in that. And we don't want it to be depressing. We don't want it to drag us down. It should push us in a particular direction. 
The preacher asks us to consider simply that the same end comes to everyone. No matter how foolish you are, how wise you are, you all head into the same point. And so he challenges us with questions that we don't know if we have permission to ask. Whether or not living a particular way, if it can't save me from death, what's the point of living? Why does it matter? I mean, if all that I work for is ultimately lost, what is the point of working? If all that I do is actually forgotten, if all that I have goes to someone else, if I leave this world naked with nothing, what is the point of doing anything? If it doesn't last for eternity, is there any meaning at all? See, the certainty of death should not scare us as much as it should change how we live under the sun. And this is what Solomon is trying to push us toward as he goes through this experiment and comes to these conclusions. Meaning found in anything that can be taken away by death leads to emptiness. If you're going to find your ultimate meaning, what do I mean by that? Your ultimate security, your ultimate joy, your ultimate identity, Whatever it is that gives you meaning, considered a meaningful life, if you're going to find that and put that in something that can be taken away by death, you will only find emptiness. Many, uh, you may have heard or may not have heard a, a writer named Viktor Frankl. You're like, oh yes, I read him all the time. Probably not. He wrote a book, a very small book, a book I would encourage many people to read. It's called Man's Search for Meaning. So he was a Jewish psychiatrist who uh, survived the death camps of World War II. Not sure what particular one, I can't remember. But during his imprisonment, um, he actually observed people. He was a psychiatrist, right? So he's just naturally observing people, and he wrote about his observations after the war. And what he observed is that individuals with a higher system of belief, is how he described it, lived longer and experienced more peace than those whose lives were built on lesser things such as prestige, money, relationships, or even freedom. He concluded that finding meaning, or in their case, meaning enough to survive, depended on having a hope for the future. Yeah, that's right, you've got to have a hope for the future. And you automatically think, yeah, hope for the future. Those in the camps who had hope for release, trust that they were going to get out of it, they're the ones that must have endured. And he says, no. It couldn't be as specific as an earthly future. It couldn't be freedom of release or even the idea that someday things will return back to the way they were. He even recounted a story of a man to prove his point, who had had a dream. And he dreamt of a particular date when the war was going to be over. We'll call it March 9th. So he had a dream that months from when he had dreamt it that the war was going to be over. March 9th. And he so vivid for him. Freedom. Return to what was. Eventually that day came. And that day went, and there was no freedom, and the war did not end. And though he had been relatively healthy up to that point, he ended up dying days later because he had lost all the hope 
that he had placed his meaning in. See, hope in the future is not hope in a specific kind of future. And for those who are parents, perhaps you know what I mean by that. You have hopes for your children. You have hopes for maybe your own job, of maybe where you thought you would be right now, and where you're not, or where you hope to be, and maybe you don't see the pathway clearly there. But if you put your hope in that particular future, and it doesn't come to pass, what happens? And this is where Solomon's trying to get us to. He's saying, like, whatever future you're thinking about, death is going to take it all away. Viktor Frankl summarized it this way. He said, life only has meaning in any circumstances if we have hope that, can neither, that neither suffering, circumstances, nor death itself can destroy. This is what Ecclesiastes is trying to teach us. The certainty of death made Solomon hate life. Let us not forget that death is the result of the fall. I always am troubled when I go to funerals and people say, oh, death is part of life. No, death is a sign that life broke. It's something happened. In Ecclesiastes 2, verse 17, Solomon says, So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. So he looks at the life under the sun that is really life apart from God and he says, ah, this is horrible. He says, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. He says, again, I hated all my work in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise or a fool. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to enjoy someone who didn't toil for it. I worked so hard and someone else gets it. How despairing. This is also vanity and a great evil, he says. Verse 22, what has a man from all his work and striving of heart with which he works beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm guessing many of us in here work or have worked. And I wonder if you've always loved your work. If you always thought, this is amazing. I just love it every day. Solomon doesn't have very good things to say about work as an ultimate place to find meaning. In chapter 1, if you remember, the preacher is what he's described as. He bemoaned the meaningless cycles of life, it seemed. He said things like, what does a man gain by all his work which he works under the sun? He wrote, a generation goes and a generation comes and the earth keeps going on and on. He says, all things are full of weariness in chapter 1. He says, there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing changes and you can change nothing, he says. And you go, gosh, Solomon. Well, you're pretty heavy, aren't you? That sounds really depressing, despairing, which he's just said, yeah, it's pretty despairing if you really look at it for what it is. So I don't know if we often do that, so I did that for you, accidentally. 
This is what God does whenever I'm going through books of the Bible. He kind of just slams me with the truth in it. So I recently threw myself a little pity party. I won't ask for hands for how many people ever thrown themselves a pity party. There was one in attendance. It was me, and it was pitiful. I threw myself a pity party as a parent and a pastor. Okay? Perhaps your pity party would have other things. Those were my two gifts. In the spirit of Ecclesiastes, I began to just think about, not even trying, how cyclical and monotonous and routine each, each week of life tends to feel. It felt like I never made any real progress. Like I never, make it, I never get ahead. Right? Like, like the gerbil on a wheel. So my son actually got a gerbil or some little rat thing. I don't know what it is. And it wands around. So I watched it the other day. What a pitiful experience, right? He's in this little cage. He can't go anywhere. He's running around in sawdust covering his own poop. And he's jumping on the wheel probably to get away from it. But he's going round and round this wheel. And what he does, he, gets to the, he starts going so fast, he gets to the top of the wheel, and he just falls. Then he gets back on the wheel. I'm like, what is wrong with you, right? Like, whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, whoa. And he gets like caught on it, so he's like just going around, but then he just falls. And you're like, what a pitiful existence. But then, I, you know, I was watching, and I went, that's right, brother. That's right. I understand. Because life feels like that sometimes. Just going, hey, this is going pretty good. Whoa, whoa, what happened? Boom. You're like, slam. That's life. So I, I, I began to think about each day in my pity party. Each day of the week, I get up, right? About the same time, generally. I eat my breakfast, maybe. Shower, usually. Brush my teeth, sometimes. Dress, go to work. Do whatever I need to do. Come home, have dinner, play with the kids. Maybe read something. Watch Shark Tank. Go to bed. Get up again. What do I do? Same thing. Same routine. I mean, things are a little bit different sometimes. Like a tire blows out. Like, hey, great, something new. But not really. I wear clothes. They get dirty. We wash clothes. We eat on plates. Like, I don't know how many times we run the dishwasher in our house. It's ridiculous. I'm like, do we ever get ahead? Messes are made. They're cleaned up. Messes are made again. I mow the lawn. It keeps growing. I got to mow it again. Each week, each day. And as a pastor, and this is not to like, you know, complain, though I am complaining. Each week, I give a chunk of hours to preparing a sermon, right? It's a lot of work. It's, it, and for some people, like, that sounds horrible. For some people, like, that's easy. I could do that. Like, whatever. It's not the easiest thing. It's not the most difficult thing. But it's work, hours, get together, stand before hundreds of people, preach a sermon. Okay, feel good. Usually depressed. I get done Monday. Let's do it again. Like, man. And sometimes, you know, we step back and you go, man, I don't know if I really like this monotonous, repetitive, routine, adulting, pastoring, parenting life. And you go, yeah, that sounds like a complaining pastor. But I'll tell you, it's nothing compared to what this preacher says. I don't know if we really like sit on what he says. So I'm going to call him the preacher, right? Because that's what he calls himself. And what does the preacher say? Right? He's 
likely around, surrounded by lots of people, even as he's saying this, because it's been written down, but he's writing it down, it's being read, like whatever. And what does he say? I hate life, and I hate my work. And you go, is he allowed to say that? Is that okay? And we don't expect a preacher to say such things. At least not publicly. I mean, you can say that privately if you'd like, but publicly you're supposed to put on the blessed happy face, right? But he expresses hatred. That's a strong word. Like we tell our kids, like, oh, I hate you. Like, well, it's not use hate. You don't like them, whatever. Like, that's a strong word. So I hate life. I hate my work. I won't ask for hands. I wonder how many people have felt that and yet have not felt permission to say that. We expect preachers, you know, the professional Christians, to declare all is a blessing all the time. Don't come into church. I'm sure half of you will be gone next week. Don't come into church and be like, I hate life. Amen. Let's pray. I want to hear the good things. I want to hear the joyful things. I want to hear the hopeful things. I want to hear the blessed things. And those who are stuck in the blessedness life are tempted to hear that and go, man, that preacher doesn't have faith. Or to cry Solomon's experience, like, you hate life? Man, that's not normal. He must be burned out. Solomon must be burned out. No preacher should be so hateful toward life or his work. And again, this is not like some subtle message. I'm like, by the way, I hate my... No, I'm not saying that. But I'm trying to like... When we hear people say that, our reaction to it, like that's wrong. And Solomon's taken a very honest picture of life that we don't typically take. We probably all feel, but we don't actually talk about. If we heard a preacher saying this, if, if, if I came in and I said this without any outside Ecclesiastes, I'm like, open up at First Peter, life sucks, let's pray, right? You'd be like, whoa, like let's, I think he needs to step down, Right? <laughs> I think, I think we need to find, clearly the ministry is too hard for him. We need to find a more mature preacher who can handle stress better and just be happier in his faith. I mean, that's how we'd react. But I was reminded, it's interesting, um, Zach Eswine, who's a great professor, and I, I, a lot of these ideas really echoed and in, in kind of used some of them. But he reminded me of the nature of wisdom literature. So if you read Job and Psalms and Proverbs and obviously Ecclesiastes, you know what? They actually give us a God-inspired range of emotions. A God-inspired range of emotions. That there is such thing as faithful despair and there's such thing as wise hatred. Did you know that Job, like, now we think of Job and we go, well, Job, I mean, that guy, if anyone had an excuse to complain about things, then Job did. Lost his family, lost his money, lost everything, was covered with boils. And at one point he says, let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said, a man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. May the day I was conceived just be gone. Jeez. That's pretty strong. I, I don't think Christians are allowed to despair like that. Then we have 
All throughout the Psalms, King David says stuff like, Scorn has broken my heart so that I am in despair, helpless. I looked for pity, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. You go, ugh. You see, the honesty of wisdom literature, I think, gives us permission to worship through our despair. It actually gives us something to do with our despair. To direct our despair, even our hatred, so that we don't just sit in it. There's nothing wrong with feeling despair. There's nothing even wrong with feeling hatred. It's the wise who actually can direct it towards where Solomon wants us to go. See, the preacher doesn't hate God, but he certainly hates life. All throughout Ecclesiastes, Solomon will actually call us to glorify God, glorify the Creator, praise the Provider who gives joy. So it's not that he hates God. But as one commentator said, sometimes only mature, only the mature have the capacity to resist pretense and admit things as they truly are. That's Solomon. And so the preacher, when he says, I hate life, his life and meaning in it doesn't rise and fall on one sentence or one season, and neither should ours. There are moments we're going to have where we have strong feelings. The question is not that you have them. What do you do with them? Where are they directed toward and what are they governed by? Solomon doesn't hate God, but what he does hate is this. The state of God's creation under the curse. The state of God's creation under the curse. And this is where he takes us to the lowest of lows, right? At least in this passage. And he does this throughout the whole book. Takes us low, he's like, death. Nothing. Everything I did is meaningless. And then he lifts us up near the end here. See, so far, Solomon's experiment revealed that there is actually no more in more. There's no meaning in more wisdom. There's no meaning in more pleasure. There's no meaning in more achievement. There's no meaning even in just more foolishness. I don't careism. He says the same end comes to everyone. We're all going to the same place, life under the sun apart from God. And so the question remains, like, well, what is, is there any benefit to living then? If it all is just despairing. And he says, yes. In the last verses of Ecclesiastes 2, and this will be a theme that's repeated throughout the book, he does reveal what is better than more. He says this, There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his work. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, He has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. These are awesome verses. When everything proves meaningless and anything we do is swallowed up by death we always are going to get to the question why do anything at all 
And I was reminded of what reformer Martin Luther once said, that if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. Think about that. When you get to a place of like, everything's meaningless, death's going to ruin it all, someone else is going to get it, what's the point of work, it's not providing what I think, and even if I build it up, I'm going to lose it. You get to like, why do anything? And Martin Luther says, if I knew the world was going to end tomorrow, if I was going to die tomorrow, I'd still plant my apple tree. Somehow, even as we are running down this difficult road toward our grave, we can experience satisfaction and joy that is meaningful. Now, Solomon spent a lifetime looking for and doing extraordinary things apart from God. That's the key. Here, it seems, that he's instructing us to find God in some really ordinary things. Eating, and drinking, and working. You know, we first hear those things in the Garden of Eden. That's the, the echoes of Eden he's talking about. Very simple gifts that were present well before the fall. But he's going to say that the gifts of Eden, whether it be food or drink or even work or relationships for that matter, all these things under the sun cannot be enjoyed apart from the gift giver who is actually beyond the sun. That's why he says, apart from him, who can have enjoyment? You catch that? Apart from him, who can have enjoyment? And then to clarify, he says this, the sinner, those who don't trust God, those who don't love God, right? They do all of this same work. They build these kingdoms. And they end up just being worn out. And they realize it's just a meaningless pursuit. And he says, but those who please God, those who know God, those who thank God, those who trust God, those who are in relationship with God, actually can enjoy their lot. Their lot. That has negative connotations for us. This is my lot, and I don't think it should. But that's what he's talking about. All these people seek for all these things, and they get all the things. And yet they don't find joy in them. And he says, yeah, you can have all those things and actually not have joy. And you can have none of those things and find joy. One writer described this. We actually must come to the place where we see a basic truth that our lot is our gift. Our lot is our gift delivered by the hand of the Lord to us. Carpe diem. I probably referenced that before. It became famous with Mr. Keating, who I always wanted to be as an English teacher in a movie called Dead Poet Society. Robin Williams played it. And he starts the movie, the first introduction to these young men who are studying at this private prep school. And he says, Carpe diem, Latin for seize the day. And as they're looking at these pictures, of these classes that have come before them. He says, look at them. He's like, you know what they're doing? They're all pushing up daisies. They're all dead. He says, gather ye rosebuds why he may. And he's quoting a, a, a poem. He says, carpe diem, seize the day. Make your lives extraordinary. 
do something meaningful before you die. Grab a hold of it. And while the spirit of this idea is motivating, I think it's, a, it's not an all bad thing. Solomon did that. He seized it all. He made every day a pretty amazing day. Grabbed it all, seized it all, and what he came to the conclusion was it left him empty. So he proposes here a different approach. Instead of seizing the day, perhaps we need to consider receiving the day as it comes. Seizing the day is very different than receiving the day. Instead of grasping for life, maybe we need to open our hands and enjoy what God has already given us. Maybe that's part of the problem. But in order to do this, we have to practice the presence of God. We can't enjoy God's gifts apart from God Himself. When we stop looking for God in what is extraordinary, and what is extraordinary is not like amazing, it's extraordinary. So our lot is in many ways the ordinary. We go, wow, there's got to be more. There's got to be something else. Practicing the presence of God means actually experiencing God in the ordinary. And what happens when you begin to practice the presence of God in the ordinary, when you begin to receive life with open hands as God's kingdom unfolding in your life, right? That's the prayer, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Really? Do you really believe that? That prayer in many ways is preparing us to receive His kingdom as it unfolds in our lives. And so as you begin to do that, as you begin to celebrate and even be grateful and even savor and enjoy the things that God has given you as opposed to focusing on things He hasn't, what happens is that that heart emptiness is replaced with joy even if your life isn't fulfilled in the way you think it should, right? Your heart gets filled up even if your life isn't filled up. You see, Solomon filled up everything in his life with everything. And he had an empty heart. And he's trying to say like, if you focus on actually filling your heart, whether your life is full of that stuff or not, it won't matter because you'll be full of joy. So I want to give you really three basic things. And these are, in many ways, some of my ideas and, and, and just a couple things that some other pastors just, just hung with me and I couldn't get rid of. They were phrases that I found myself saying to my wife commonly, her saying to me, writing on like, you know, my mirror, just remembering, and I hope they're helpful for you. Basic truths that will help you do this. Number one, do not let what you can't control rob you of what you can enjoy. Do not let what you can't control rob you of what you can enjoy. Now, whether you want to admit it or not, which some people will, we are all control freaks. Every single one of us. Some people are like, yeah, I'm really a control freak. Like, no, we all are in many ways. We are trying to control our lives to get what we want when we want it. That doesn't necessarily have to be the worst thing in the world, but it has to be something you're like, I want to aim this way because I believe that is best for whatever reason. But I think the longer you live and the more you read Ecclesiastes, whether it be people or circumstances or even God Himself, because we like to control God and dictate when He gives us and what He gives us. What we realize when we try to control people, circumstances, or God Himself, that that need for control, which is pretty futile, 
robs us of joy. Because we're so focused on trying to accomplish or build or get or seize whatever it is we think we need to fill that emptiness. What we realize and what Solomon realizes is that you can try to control a lot of stuff, but what you're going to at some point in your life come to grips with is that you cannot control your death. Everyone's going to die at some point, and you can't stop that. It reminded me of when my neck was all messed up, which is still kind of messed up, but uh, back September, a year and a half or so, when my legs stopped working. You couldn't tell, but I was up here leaning on my podium quite a bit. Because if I didn't, I'd be like, eh, like just buckle. If you did notice, I'd walk down the stairs sometimes very carefully because I fell more than once in my office by myself for no reason. And when that kind of thing starts to happen to you, you know what you realize more than anything? You're not in control. There's no amount of weight I could have lost that could have changed it. There's no pills I could have taken. I had no control. There's more than once I was on my face before the Lord because I wanted to control it. I wanted to fix it, right? I'm a fixer. We're all fixers. Death is something you cannot control. And what you realize, I think, the older you get, as Solomon is going to continue to tell us, there's actually not much you can control in your lives. Now, that's a hard one to swallow. But you have very little control over your lives. And what happens, though, is that we have convinced ourselves that we do have control, and all it accomplishes is robbing us of joy as we try to control what we can't control. Distracted by what we don't have or what we want or the things that we don't want or we're trying to get rid of, we end up hating life because we can't fix it as opposed to enjoying what we have right in front of us. Simple things, little things. Our children sitting in the backyard in a campfire celebrating s'mores playing soccer, having a good meal with a friend, watching Shark Tank, which is an amazing show, right? But just being grateful for simple pleasures. And it isn't like just check out and don't think about anything, but it's actually being intentionally grateful and thankful and recognizing the gifts that God has given you and not so focused on the ones He hasn't yet. Second thing. Do not make God's gifts, there are many in your life, into God's goals for your life. We do this with our children all the time. We go, man, I heard the pastor say I need to enjoy the moments with my children, and then our children become an idol, and they become governing every moment of our life. We have to be careful with that. We must be careful that these gifts that are from, the, from Eden, echoes of Eden, right? Even food and drink and work, right? And people. They, God wants us to find joy in them, but never forget that they are still cursed by sin. So as one writer wrote it really well, I thought it was awesome, especially because I'm a soccer player, so I loved the analogy. He said, good pleasures are like watermelons used to play soccer. So, I love watermelon. I think it's messy and wonderful and good, and if you don't like it, something wrong with you. It's beautiful. 
But he says, good pleasures like watermelons used to play soccer. They are good in themselves, but they will splatter if we truly use them to score a goal. Good luck playing soccer with a watermelon, right? Eat a watermelon, enjoy a watermelon for what it's designed to do. You try to use it for something it's not designed to do, it's a mess. It's funny for a second, one kick and it ain't funny anymore. Game over, right? But we do that with all kinds of things. Instead of enjoying the gifts of God, we make them, that's the point of life. All good gifts are from God and all good gifts are very disappointing gods. None of the gifts are designed to satisfy like God Himself. My son just had a birthday, turned eight. I'm not a huge fan of birthdays, but they're always joyful when they actually happen. But planning to put them together, no fun. But as we're sitting there, it's amazing, it's especially the younger they are, how much they just want you to be present as they're opening their presents. They just want to like, yeah, enjoy this with me. Like, yeah, it's great, right? And the older a kid gets like, you got my hundred bucks, you my card, like, you know, they don't care. But the younger kids are still that childlike, you know, they're just like, Dad, look at this, you know, and I don't know if you understand that's what God is like, right? God is not a deadbeat dad who mails his birthday check once a year, right? He is the perfect father who wants to see you receive your gifts, and he wants to see you open your gifts. And he wants to see you enjoy and play with your gifts. Like he is not a cosmic killjoy. He intends for us to have joy and to play with our gifts and enjoy them, all that he's given us. But we try to do that apart from him. He doesn't just want us to enjoy his gifts. He wants us to enjoy him. And what Solomon says, it's impossible even if you have every gift under the sun, to enjoy those gifts apart from Him. But we do it. And I'm not even going to tell you exactly how to not do it. I'm just saying that it's very clear that we do it, and we have to consider what it means to actually be present with God as we enjoy those gifts and not let those gifts actually take us away from God. The last thing is we shouldn't search to find meaning of life. Instead, we should seek for meaning in life. We shouldn't work to find God in the big things that we don't have, but know that He has already found us in the small things that we already do. See, when you practice the presence of God, seeking Him where you are, thanking Him for what you have, trusting Him for what you don't, you begin to see and experience all of life differently. I like how Brother Lawrence said it in this book, Practice of the Presence of God. He doesn't ask much of us, merely a thought of Him from time to time, a little act of adoration, sometimes to ask for His grace, sometimes to offer your sufferings, and other times to thank Him for the graces past and present He has bestowed on you in the midst of your troubles to take solace in Him as often as you can. Lift up your heart to Him during your meals and in company. The least little remembrance will always be the most pleasing to Him. One need not cry out very loudly, for He is nearer to us than we think. I think enjoying God is actually quite simple. It doesn't require a program. It just requires some intentional gratitude. 
in closing, I know that hearing like, you know what, your lot is your gift can sound kind of like a joy surrender. Oh, fine, I'll accept my lot if this is my lot. And that's not what I want it to be like. That's not what Solomon, I think, is trying to tell us. Perhaps accepting your lot is better understood as refusing to compare or refusing to covet or refusing to try and control and produce meaning under the sun. Instead, perhaps it's no longer seeking meaning from where you are not, but finding meaning where you are. It is wisely hating this broken life under the sun so that you might enjoy it before you actually die. And it's losing your life done apart from God so that you might find it with Him now in Christ and with Him for all eternity. Life doesn't have to be joyless. I think the key is surrender. And death doesn't have to be the end for those who are in Christ. The key is, where's your hope? Because life under the sun is meaningful and it is joyful when it's lived through faith in Jesus Christ. Trusting that He died in your place for your sins. Believing that He rose from the dead and letting, like, living as if He actually is Savior and He actually is Lord who is commanding you and directing you for your joy, not just to be mean, not to just hold out on you. The moment you think that the Lord is holding out on you, you have believed the original lie of Satan. We said, well, did God really say that? No, He know what He knows. Don't listen to the liar. Listen to God. Only Jesus offers a hope that cannot be taken away not even in death. Because only Jesus, only Jesus is the one that died and rose again. So only Jesus is the one who can lead you in death and then lead you back to life again. That's uniqueness of the Christian faith. Death comes to us all. And if our hope is found in something that can be taken away by that, you have no hope at all. But there is hope in Christ and there is joy in Christ now and in eternity. I promise. Let's pray.